0: Singard Superior. The Almighty AR is still on hiatus, but nonetheless, we have a really, really special interview. Um, For today's show, we have Cyrus Bozikmere, the author of Once Upon a Time in Shaolin, the untold story of Wu-Tang Clan's million-dollar secret album, The Devaluation of Music, and America's New Public Enemy Number 1. Cyrus, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here yeah um, and as I was just telling you uh, off air um it's I think this is one of the uh, one of the b- better hip hop books that I've read in quite a long time. It's just funny, engaging, a really um easy read, and i mean you, you're a pretty great writer if I do say so myself. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, before we delve into the book, um, you know, I was just doing a little bit of research on you uh, and you are a rather interesting fellow, if I do say so myself.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, it's been a it's been a
1: it's been a checkered career. Should
0: we say. Yeah. So, OK. So, first of all, you um, I know that you, you manage hotels, if I'm correct.
1: Well, my my we've got a kind of management company. To be honest, my wife handles most of that side of things. But that was when I moved to Marrakech twelve years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kind of walked in. It was it was very much the Wild West period where that lit, all kinds of investment was coming in, and hotels were opening. And it was just it was just something we, we started doing. They're all quite small. They're all kind of B and B kind of traditional converted houses. But yeah, so that was um, that was that's
0: definitely one part of the, the stuff we got going on. Okay, and then you are one of the founders of Arcadia, which is kind of like this – how would you describe it?
1: Um, well, to, i just got to be clear. I'm not one of the founders. Okay. I'm definitely um, – you know, I, I came on about two, three years afterwards. Um, Arcadia, we basically create, I guess, um, sort of immersive environments. Okay. Um. So you've got, I mean, our main structure, you've got a 50-ton uh, spider built out of uh, recycled military hardware. So the eyes are jet engines, the arms are helicopter tails, that kind of thing, and um – uh, we've got moving art, moving cranes as arms. It shoots 60-foot fireballs. And we've got a kind of 80-meter 80, 80 sound field, inward-facing sound field. Um, so you kind of step inside and you've got music coming from every direction. You've got acrobats spinning off the spider. You've got lasers, flames going off, that kind of thing.
0: <laughs> well, wow. Okay. Um, and you're also you're, you're a DJ, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. The I part of tribe. Yeah, I came up, that was kind of my background. I came up in, in the 90s in the illegal rave scene. Um, so kind of that whole same period where kind of Wu-Tang was breaking out um, in, in the hip-hop world, kind of 93 onwards. We were um, kind of on the run from the police most of the time, um, doing, you know, pretty large warehouse raves and free festivals and that kind of thing. Um, and, and yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that, you know, producing music, DJed a lot. So that was definitely kind of a huge part of the nineties and I've kind of kept my hand in since.
0: Yeah. I've, uh, yeah, I see. I, yeah, I went to your SoundCloud page and checked out some of your, your DJ sets and everything like that. Oh, cool. Um, yes. Yeah, um, interesting stuff. And, uh, and so you're also, so you, so you, uh, obviously you're an author, which is why you're here. But, uh, so you, you also write fiction and so you also have a novel out called The Syndicate, right? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I kind of had it was really weird because when I did when I did Shaolin, mm-hmm. like I kinda of got to the end of it. And it was weird, it had been such an intense period with so much mad stuff going on. And I kinda of wrote the book quite soon after it, while it was all really fresh and quite raw. And then there was like this year long wait. Um and so I just thought, you know what? I'm gonna i I'm gonna write another one. Um, you know, while I'm in the zone. So so yeah, that
0: came out too. Man, you, <laughs> man, you, you have a lot going on. And then, uh, did, did you also uh, 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 write the the rabbit hole too? I saw that on Amazon as well. I did.
1: I took it down. I mean, to be honest, it was one of the I self published that like five years ago. Mm-hmm. And like when I had shot, I was like kind of between friends. And like when I realized that other stuff was coming out that was going to be taken more seriously, I kind of took it down. It needed a heavy edit. Um, you know, I, it was one of those ones that I probably should have thought a little bit harder about before I put it out. So,
0: um, but it was a learning curve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, what I've noticed between all of your writings, you know, your writings on your website and everything like that, and with your novels and with uh, Shaolin in general, is that you are really interested in this kind of sort of, uh, cultural imperialism, uh, the, the legality of institutions and society in general and i'm curious to know i can know i can only help but imagine that um the illegal rave scene coming up in the 1990s and everything like that did that influence um your your writing and your ideology on certain things yeah very much there was i mean there was
1: was like there was a really key thing about the illegal rave scene it was a backlash against um Margaret Thatcher, who was was the British Prime Minister in the 80s. And she was very much it was very much a partner to Reagan. So you had heavy deregulation of kind of banks and industries. You had huge crackdowns on kind of subcultural movements. Um, And materialism became sanctified. Um, And it, what we were doing was a kind of reaction to that, and ironically enough, for where we where I ended up <laughs> 20 years later with Shaolin, it was about doing the, the most the most revolutionary statement we could make at the time was to make things free, was to take money out of the equation, and so to, there were two things about it. One, you did that you, you know, it, it wasn't economically driven; it was passion driven. That's mm. why everybody was there, everybody sweated blood sweat. You know, you put blood sweat and tears into it to create something that you just off opened up to the people, um, and you took money completely out of the equation. The second really interesting thing about it was that when you take, that there's this kind of understanding in society that if you don't have security, you will have anarchy. You will have anarchy in the bad sense. And what we noticed that if you stripped, if you took away an official security force, you would, you would, people suddenly started to look after each other in a completely different way. There was. It became a community in a different way to nightclubs at the time and things that concerts and stuff that was top down, strictly controlled.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Now, uh, now, what's interesting about what you just said about community and trust is also one of the, I would say, one of the main tenets of Shaolin when it came to the secrecy of the album and just having, at the end of the day, to trust people even beyond um, certain contractual obligations toward the end uh, which you kind of get into and when it comes to um just writing in general general before we delve into the book um i'm curious to know because i, I know you you, uh, you write poetry also uh do you write do you use a different muscle do you think uh when you write uh non-fiction and fiction
1: um it's a weird one in a way in fact i'm more comfortable with nonfiction. um I, uh, I, you know, I find I, I find writing about ideas and concepts easier than developing characters. I must say. So I mean, I guess some of my characters in fiction are more vehicles for ideas mm. um, than. You know, you then really kind of nuanced different characters, and I, I think there's two very different styles. So I'm trying to get across a series of ideas in uh, in in what I write in fiction, laced with humour and all that kind of thing. But I wouldn't say I'm a kind of great character developer. Okay.
0: Well, I will say that uh, what I was kind of surprised about uh, about reading Shaolin. I'm um, going into it. Is that? It, I mean, there, there there are several several angles when it comes to this entire story. So, uh, you have Silver Rings, right? Who is the the uh, pretty much the brain behind um, this entire project? Um, you know, starting it, recording it, creating, producing the album, and everything like that. And he's he's trying to, in so many words, I guess, kind of get his magnum opus, or like that thing that will, you know, kind of. Uh, cement his legacy. Meanwhile, oh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, which is really interesting because he ended up doing it in a completely paradoxical way (laughs) because on the one hand, yes, he was trying to do something that would make a difference. On the other hand, all this thing that he put all this time and energy into was kind of going to end up with no one hearing it and him getting lots of criticism because there was no way he wasn't going to get lots of criticism. You know, what I mean? no one was going to come, go, you know, step back and salute him as a hero for what he was doing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you have Riza, who is, of course, the the abbot of the Wu Tang Clan. But however, you know, and the, all the listeners know about the the plan and the five year plan and everything like that. And, and you said that his dictatorship was over with, so he also, you know, he was also playing a role within the clan in which he couldn't exactly just you know kind of get them all together under this project and so it was a really touchy situation between Riza and silver Rings and trying to even get you know all the all these other people into the notion of even doing a project and then even when the project you know came to be it still didn't officially have the um, the, the, the Wu Tang uh, you know like the, the Wu Tang stamp on it until relatively late in the process.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, there was a line I said in the book, which I think really holds true. I think R- RZA, when kind of Silvering's the first approach to them, I- I'm not sure how totally seriously he took it at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, both in terms of the idea and as far as, the, as, far as the, making the album was concerned, I don't think RZA even saw it as a Wu-Tang album. Mm-hmm. back in 2007 when it, when it started being recorded it was just like look you know it uh, you know, was he was kind of it was more of a mental situation back then it's like you know go make some music see what happens and i think there was an element of giving him just enough oxygen to let the project breathe if there was life if it was meant to be but it also enough rope to hang himself if there wasn't if it wasn't going to work out it was like come and you know come back and see me when you got something and we'll talk you know so there was like some encouragement there but i don't think RZA was fully
0: committed right at the beginning no yeah and I will say that you you do a really like good job building up Silver Rings as character within this book because um you know I I mean I've, I've I've been well aware of Silver Rings for a long time you know I remember when his first album I came out and everything like that and you know yet and still like the the I guess like the first the first few chapters of the book when you're talking about Silver Rings. Um some of these things I didn't know like I didn't I didn't know like the entire story of how he got involved with Rizza, you know, going to New York several times and like you know uh you know me going to like the Wu-Tang Nail Salon which I had no idea existed. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It was it was just a it was a crazy story, and I think you know for me the first time I heard that story it was just like Jesus Christ. I mean I literally couldn't believe it. And I think you know when I when I when I met RZA and got to know RZA and you know we've been in situations where we're talking about it. I think that really cemented him in RZA's mind. You know RZA had you know a hundred rappers coming through, a hundred kids that wanted to get with the clan. Um, but I think the combination of his just outright stubborn determination, and the fact that his path took him into his family, took it into Riza's family before it came to Riza. I think because he'd had contact with his mother, his sister, that kind of thing. I think that created a, a, a kind of tenderness that Rizza had for him as well. That he gave him, he gave him time. He
0: made a kind of place for him in his head. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, when when it when it came to like all, like all the like the, the, the the media rollout and the firestorm surrounding Once Upon a Time and Shaolin. Uh, you know, Silver Rings, I, I feel like a lot of, in a lot of ways, he kind of got flack, especially in the beginning. And it seemed to me that in, in some of the outlets, in some of these news outlets, no one really exactly took him seriously. I recall, you know, people just caught labeling him as like a Wu-Tang super fan and not really understanding the extent to his, um, you know, his connections with Riza and everything like that in the Klan overall so was that one of the reasons um one of the reasons as to why you decided to really spend time building up silver rings and really telling their story i think that was that played a part in it
1: you know um he he was very saying i remember at the time he was getting all this flag and i was pretty aware that i wouldn't be dealing with it half as well as he was um and he was pretty philosophical about it but, but i think there was two or three things i think it was really easy to just dismiss it i think it was really easy because a lot of people just didn't like this project you know, it wasn't, it was never going to be a fan favorite, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what was going on here. And I think having this kind of silvering, who the hell's he? He's just a kind of hanger-on, what's going on? It's re- It was it was easier to put him down, I think, in a lot of ways than it was to kind of take the whole thing seriously. And I think that the, the combine and I think that story of how he got with the clan. I think that kind of, it was like this, the whole thing was just like this really weird remix of the American Dream where, you know, this kind of, this kind of Moroccan dude with glasses from kind of Holland ends up by sheer force of will, um, ends up being taken seriously by RZA, Um, starts to slowly evolve his own identity after he kind of got past that period of just trying to prove himself as a, as a kind of, you know, I'm just like you guys. And, you know, I think he started to develop his own identity. And I think the more that happened, the more there respected for him for it. And the, and this all happened kind of behind the scenes. Um, and I think that for a lot of people who didn't necessarily know that much about him, he just suddenly popped up as the kind of, you know, architect co-producer of this really dubious thing. And, and you know, it was... When you're, ang- when you're angry at a con- when you're angry at an idea, it's really easy to focus your dislike on someone you don't really know much about or understand, and doesn't necessarily fit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I- and I think without knowing the backstory, it's easy to come to those conclusions.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, most definitely. And uh, you know, and also, um, I I I never knew that, or I never would have thought that Silver Rings had certain. Um, certain ideas about his first album I, you know just like him not exactly um caring for it at the end and just really thinking that the only reason why i got the attention that it did was because he he managed to get like the entire um clan on the album in general
1: yeah i think he had some confidence issues i mean you know that album you know i i, I think it was a real it was one of those things that i think he was so high on life at having been accepted and having been given this opportunity and I think he really mu- he started off going you know how can I be as Wu-Tang as possible in kind of what I do what I say in just how I approach this just how you know how how spiritually I kind of take this album on and the problem is you can't you can't ju- you can't just take you, ch- you can't feed into something that isn't your identity it isn't your reality mm-hmm. and so by the time this album actually came out the lyrical content had changed significantly and reflected reflected more of who he was and what he had to say but I think that as that was happening and as he was becoming more confident in himself, I actually think that weirdly enough, it wasn't insecurity that made him question his own, his own kind of whether he should actually be the one fronting, fronting as a rapper. I think actually it was, a, it was a form of confidence that allowed him to admit that to himself without feeling, you know, that that was it. His shot was gone, that he had other ways to contribute. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and I mean, and obviously he, he did it in a very big way. Um, and, when it came to writing the book, like throughout this entire process, um, over the years, did you ha- like you know have a journal or something like that to write down like your ideas and what was like happening in the mu in the music world around you and everything like that as this entire process um went on?
1: No, not at all. It was really weird. Um, I had, I had written like three or four articles for like a website, a, a kind of dance music website in Holland. Um, really ironically, cause I've got nothing to do with Holland. It was an English dude out of Berlin who got me to write for this, uh, for this, for this website. And this, you know, having come from kind of, you know, a different, different part of the music industry, dance music, rave music, that kind of thing, and seeing what was happening there. I'd already kind of had, I'd already come to some of these conclusions about what was wrong. Certainly hadn't come anywhere near the idea of, of, of what, you know, someone's so wanting to do about it. But I kind of already ca- came to the table with those ideas. I'd already kind of thought through them and analyzed them. And during the process where we were doing this whole thing, I, didn't, I had no idea I was going to write a book, um, and a couple of times Silvering said to me, you know, you should write a book when this is finished. I was dead against it. I was like, no, I'm too close to this. I don't want to do it. Um, it'll be weird. Can't we just get, you know, if, is there a journalist, someone objective that can do this? And then when, when I did my knee in, um, uh, <laughs> I was literally, I couldn't move for like a month, um, and I just, I, just, I just thought, you know what? I'm going to start writing the first page and see where this goes. And it just wrote itself in a very short space of time. It was very close to while this was all still happening. Um, and I wrote the book, Right, I wrote the book, in most, like, two-thirds of it, um, there and then, in, like, even before Ma- it was Martin Shkreli's name came out. Um, and then I kind of wrote the rest of it, um, the kind of last few chapters, um, you know, once that had happened. And I think part, being, so, being so close to the time, uh, and it all still being really fresh. And it was a combination of I could be more objective than the guy. I could be more objective than Silverings and Rizzo because, you know, it wasn't my name on the block. But at the same time, I was deep in enough that I was emotionally engaged and really quite passionate about it. And I actually think it was important to write it then. If, I'd re- if I wrote it now, I, th- I just I don't think it would have the same flow. It was, you know, I- we lived and felt and had those highs and lows at the time. And I, that was the perfect time to write it.
0: Yeah, so when it comes to uh, you know you like so you are this outsider, right? So you're you're this outsider because you know you and you admitted in the book that you're not really like a you were never like a big hip hop guy, right? Yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. But at the same time, though, you're, you're 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 still a part of you know just based on you know you you advising Silver Rings and RZA when it came to everything, and I think that generally all all three of you guys are willing to say wavelength when it comes to different philosophies and and everything like that. But what's interesting is that you say that you did not hear the entire album. Um, you, did, you didn't hear the album in, in its entirety.
1: No, I never did. Um, I still haven't. Um, and we, it was even burned on my computer. Um, and I like, literally, I watched it go into iTunes. And I had this sort of split second of, do I keep it? And it was like, that's just a lawsuit waiting to happen. Um, and deleted it, and it was it was it was really weird. Like, because I, because I'm not a big hip hop guy, and I think this, you know, I think this actually helped. I think if I'd been a massive Wu Tang fan, um, I would have approached the whole thing differently. But I approached it very in a kind of quite an abstract sense. I basically, as far as I was concerned, I was dealing with a set of ideas. Uh, we were dealing with a set of ideas, and it's 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 like the weirdest, most hypocritical statement going. But for a project that was about the music, that's the whole point. It was about the music. I was scared to listen to the music because that would take, that would stop it just being these abstract concepts about value and about, you know, all these different, you know, how we perceive music, how we perceive music at art. And it would become, it would become a two hour and seven minute hip hop album. And I didn't know enough, you know, I, I, I know some hip hop, you know, I was more into kind of, you know, late 80s. Early 90s hip-hop, kind of Eric B and Rakim, you know, NWA, Public Enemy, that kind of thing. So, you know, I like hip-hop, but I wouldn't be able to tell you. I wouldn't be able to say if this was A-Star, if this was not, if this was anything like that. And 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 I, because I wasn't like, you know, I've got so many friends who are Wu-Tang fans. I'm going, you're crazy. What? How could you not have listened to it? And it's just like, you know, that kind of wasn't... My Aida wasn't my job; it wasn't my role here, and I I I felt weird doing it. And also, like you know, it, weirdly enough, with all the like weird subterfuges that kind of went on uh, towards, towards the back end of the project, at, we just didn't want to lie that much. And you know, the the, th- the line was only two people had listened to this in its entirety, and I kind of wanted to keep it that way. And actually, that was what was such a rush. That like the first time I heard it was literally in the soundcheck at at PS One. Mm-hmm. Um, And even then, I was looking at how other people were reacting to it. My, I was so nervous about how this would be received that my focus was on watching other people's faces. Hmm.
0: I mean, there there are just so so many ways I I, I can go. All kinds of questions. Um. So okay. So so this is this is one question I have. So are are the masters to Once Upon a Time in Shaolin like they're they're like they don't exist, right? They don't exist. They don't exist. So. Thanks. And well, this is one thing I, I do have a question about when it, came, when it comes to like the, the back end of the book. Yeah. Um, okay, so you – to, toward the, the final chapters, you were like scaring the shit out of me when it came to you guys like lugging the boxes onto the air like, – on, 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 throughout the airport. It was crazy. It, I, it was like Yeah. I mean was, the thing is there was no other way to do it. I mean like
1: it was one of those things like what do you do with your laptop? You put it in hand luggage. What do you do with, like, the thing that's most precious to you? You keep it with you. Um, you know, the idea of shipping it from Morocco to, to, to New York, where any million things could have happened, um, it was like, no, no, this is going to have to go in hand luggage, and we're going to have to go in it. And then there was that sort of catalogue of catastrophe where, you know, the, you know because there was there was an extra box. That was the thing. There, the, all, all the, that box and all the photos, the main box, there's another one. A big leather and wood box that's like to keep that in. It's like a transport thing. And that's what the paperwork was for, um, through God knows what miscommunication. (laughs) So there we are in JFK with a customs dude going, um, so, you know, you've got like three silver boxes, but you've got paperwork for this leather thing. And he's already unimpressed. And then he's going, okay, open it then. At which point, I realize, because I'm on my own at this point, still brings in the holding room being pulled up, um, you know, and I'm just, I suddenly realize we don't have a key. And I mean, it's just kind of turning into an Abbott and Costello sketch at this point. like you know what this is these are the kind of things that actually that emotionally engaged me in this project is that this wasn't like for a lot of people who looked at this project I think they thought it was like this kind of like PR publicity stunt cash grab kind of thing and it really wasn't it actually reminded me of my roots in the illegal rave scene it it was a completely DIY project and even though there were kind of six you know seven figure numbers at stake and you had you know one of the most legendary hip-hop producers in the game doing it. There was, you know, there was no external people. There was no PR firms. You know, we did our own legal stuff, by and large. Um, it just, it kind of felt like a street move. It really did. And I know that might sound ironic, but that's why, that, I think that is the element of it that made me really, really emotionally engaged with it instead of just being quite a detached advisor.
0: mm mm-hmm. But when it came to, and I mean, I get it, I guess like, you know, traveling... Like, you know, getting the boxes across the uh, across the globe, you know, I guess it really isn't any other, other way you could do it. But um, when it comes to, you know, just like when, when you guys were carrying like those boxes, were you guys worried at, you know, devaluing uh, the entire project overall if something, if like if it got messed up? Yeah, I'm terrified. I mean, absolutely, absolutely <laughs> terrified. But it was like at this point, we
1: developed a kind of bunker mentality as well. Where we just, like, we were in so deep that, like, you know, if it happened on our watch, that was our responsibility. The idea of, like, giving it to DHL or some art shipping company like and letting it out of our hands, that was even more of a loss of kind of control. And that, you know, we'd rather, you know, yes, we were concerned about something going wrong, but at least it would be down to us. And we would, have, we would be there on the spot if and when something happened and take responsibility for it. Um, so the less anyone else had to do with it, the kind of safer we felt.
0: Mm. now so so the actual cd so so you guys didn't have the cd and in silver rings he recorded like a 15 minute like medley of the album uh, for people to listen to um in new york but yeah. so is is the cd like an act like i guess like an actual like cd or is it something does it have like silver on it or something like that or, 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 or? No, No.
1: it's a double CD. It's two CDs, and they're like
0: printed, so they're like printed like a store bought
1: CD, um, you know, with the name and all that kind of thing, and and some artwork. But you know, there was it was it was the irony was that you could go through all these lavish layers of packaging to make it special, but when push comes to shove, physical music is a plastic CD or a piece (laughs) of wax. That is, there's just no getting away. You can't dress that up. You can't have a solid gold CD, Um, you know. And in many ways. That was the joker in the pack because what we were really, you know, for a lot of people, the value was about the box. The value was about this. The value was about the hype. The point was that what you're really selling were two pieces of plastic with the music on it. And that was what we were trying to reattach value to. And the rest of it was really a kind of a set of arrows trying to point into these two things that people didn't seem to value anymore. That had kind of gone digital. It's just going, do you know what? Plastic pieces of plastic are you know have huge amounts of value because of the art that's engraved into them you know and and we and we should respect that generally more we shouldn't have to put it in a silver box
0: mm. now yeah but i mean would i mean did, did you guys like ever like have like a, a deep debate on whether it should be on vinyl or if it should be on cassette or something well, i guess maybe not cassette but like on or cd or, or some other kind of medium um yes there was a debate about vinyl uh,
1: there was a debate about vinyl. Um, I, I actually think one of the, it, yeah, I mean, that wasn't my call. Um, mm-hmm. and I was less involved in that specific debate to be fair. Um, I think it just, I think it just ended up working better as a package and it just ended up, I don't, I don't think there was a philosophical message in that. It's just how it panned out. That was just, it was just easier and more effective to do with dimensions to the box, that kind of thing, what we could do with it.
0: Now, all throughout the book, you know, while, while you guys are having this kind of roller coaster of a uh, of several years, which is which is very interesting, you um, all throughout you're talking about the changing landscape in music between you know the title streaming Taylor Swift and 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 and, and everything like that. Yeah. Um, so. I mean, I, I, and I, I guess you, you do describe it in the book, but I mean, but I guess just like vocally, like how, like how was that? Like how ironic was it to you like all that all these things were happening as you guys were trying to have this, this kind of really special project trying to bring back the value of music. Meanwhile, the devaluation of music was slowly increasing per se. It was really weird. It was, I think, you know, it, I looked at it two ways. I let, part, half
1: of it was that, exactly what you say. Like, there was just more and more kind of streaming things and free things and all that kind of thing. Um, the U2 thing, for example, you know, let's just give this album away for free, whether you like it or not, kind of thing. You know, <laughs> you're having it. Um, but at the same time, what was interesting was that everyone was just experimenting. No one knew what to do, you know, whether it's U2, Wu Tang, Jay Z, no one knew how to deal with the changing landscape. And everyone was trying experiments, you know. Mm-hmm. And everyone was trying to find some way to, to, to help kind of put a bridle on where the future of this thing was going. Um, and so actually, in some ways, that was reassuring because everyone was, ju- you know, everyone was in the same boat. No one had the answer. And from us trying to do this kind of, you know, uber physical kind of, you know, make this really strong point about physicality and value and recorded music. And others were going, well, look, the landscape's changed. How are we going to make sure that this, that, you know, we can find a way that artists can survive off that? So, I, you know, in, in some ways, I think U2's, I think, was the most cynical move. Um, I, you know, that I didn't think was cool at all. I think Jay-Z, for example, was just, you know, he was just, he was trying to address the new, the changing musical landscape. And not just leave it all to some, you know, to Spotify or, you know, it was how can we as a culture... Or they as a culture have some influence on where this is going instead of just like, you know, being a victim
0: to it. Do you think that people have figured out the music landscape yet or do you think that we're still struggling with uh, trying to figure it out? I think we're still struggling. I think think, think the the biggest problem going
1: Is how a new guy gets heard. Like when I was in the 90s, you'd go to a record store, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm talking about dance music. You go, drum and bass, jungle or something. You go in, the guy would have 10 records from each subgenre, and you just skip through. And like, if you were were a guy who no one had ever heard of, you had no promotional budget, you had no nothing, as long as you could raise that money to press up 500 tunes on vinyl and and walk around record shops and give them to them. Those record shots would would play them to people who came in. You had a shot. The, I think the real problem now is that you can go, you can be on Spotify or Beatport or iTunes really easily. No one's ever going to find you. There's tens of thousands of new releases, and so it's like unless there's some form of patronage, it's like that weird contradiction that with the internet, digitality was supposed to liberate us from all of this. It was supposed to make Level the playing field so the dude in his bedroom had the same shot as Warner Brothers, um, you know, because distribution had been democratized. And what we've ended up with is that, yes, that's true, but there's now, you you know, the, the influence still plays as strong a stronger role as ever, if not more, because the only way you're going to get heard above the crowd is either by some ingenious kind of marketing ploy uh, or money or promotional money. And so, in terms of breaking. You know, in, in terms of democratizing landscape and in t- even in terms of as a, as a DJ, when I go and look for new music, it's, it's a nightmare. You know, if I, you know, I'm playing techno and breakbeat or something like that, I go to a new releases page on Beatport and I go through the new releases. Te- I, I just can't do it. So I end up being reliant on charts and that and recommendations and that kind of thing. You know, I simply cannot wade through the thousands and thousands of new releases. And I think and I, and I think saturation is as much of a problem as people not paying for music. I think that if there was a way to reshape the economics, but it'd be fair, um, we might we might get somewhere. You know, maybe streaming is going to you know, maybe streaming will inevitably be the way to go. I don't know. But I still don't see how raw talent from the street is going to get through unless they've got a kind of, uh, unless they've got patronage of some kind.
0: Yeah, you know, yeah, I recall, Um, I think to maybe... In the middle of the book, you 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 do talk about like these tastemakers and like the whole like Apple buying Beats and you have Beats Radio, or what, what, I guess whatever this just called now, and these different kinds of playlists and these tastemakers that are supposed to pretty much tell us, um, you know, like what's hot or something like that. And I guess in, in many ways we've already we've always had that with the DJ breaking like a song or whatever like that, but it um, it just seems way more complicated and now branding is becoming more of a thing in which, you know, I, I get it, and not to say that uh, that artists haven't had brands, period, but, um, you know, like, you know, if you have someone, like, you know, coming from the streets, right, um, a lot of musicians, they aren't business people, and, you know, they don't exactly want, they don't exactly care about a brand, they just care about their music, which then I would, I would imagine uh, by them fo- focusing on branding and, you know, and their influence would... Um, discourage them from, you know, uh, going outside of their their usual musical landscape and, 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 and not want to, um, you know, explore different sounds as much. I think that's very true. I mean, you know, I think that's very true. I mean, you know, here's the thing. It's like
1: it's really weird. If you try and pitch something now, if you try and pitch a movie or try and pitch a book, right, you generally try and say it's like this, something that people have already have heard of. Or it's a mix of this and this, two things that people have already heard of. You keep trying to justify what, you're, what you've done by referencing something that's already been done. In order to get someone to go, well, that's sold. Okay, I'm going to pay attention to this. Um, and I think this is the other thing. Musicians, exactly like you say, you can't just be a musician anymore. You have to be a musician. You have to be a, you have to be a marketer. You have to be a manager. You have to be a label manager. You have, you have, you know, It doesn't stop at producing a piece of music. If you want to succeed and you don't have a, a kind of organization around you, you have to do all of those things. And that isn't necessarily the right way. You know, that, you know, a true creative soul isn't necessarily going to be able to do all of that kind of thing. You know, that and they shouldn't be able to. You know, they, they produce something amazingly creative, but they just don't know what to do with it. Um, and that's a real problem as well.
0: Literally yesterday, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but RZA has like this thing with Chipotle. Where oh, I've heard something vaguely about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So he he, he, he partnered with Chipotle and he made sounds uh, that reflected like their ingredients. So like soybeans, like onions. So like he's doing like guitar flicks or like, you know, like drum rolls or whatever like that. And they put them all like they put like the stems all out on like SoundCloud. You can download them and then you can like make things with them um and the, and so with that there's like a Wu-Tang mix so RZA has made something with Wu-Tang um and then I think maybe like two other mixes which I found really really weird but you know that's not to say that RZA has, I mean Riza's always done like interesting ventures like that um in general and uh I guess a quick aside here ironically enough I bought Chipotle later that day so <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's, it's a really what that's the thing is, my experience was, you know, he, he's the kind of guy that someone we'll not just come up to him and, you know, and just and, you know, if they just say, look, go and advertise Chipotle. All right. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll, he'll you know, he'll, he might just say, you know, talk to my business about it, something like that. He won't take that seriously. He won't engage with it. If they come, if there's like, right, how can we do something really creative and weird? Let's pretend it's not an ad. Right. Let's just see. I, I actually think that's quite an interesting concept. It's weird. I mean, definitely weird. Um, I agree, but I also think that it, for him, it's like, well, that's an interesting creative challenge. That's something I haven't done before. That's something I can get my teeth into. I mean, I think that that is the kind of thing that would press his buttons in a kind of creative way, because it's just, it's just like, you know, how the hell do you, you know, get <laughs> sound for, you know, onion sauce or whatever?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, I felt pretty vulnerable when I because when I went to Chipotle well, that same day. I didn't realize, like, the connection between listening to, like, like the Wu-Tang mix and, like, listening to all the sounds with, like, different ingredients until I was, like, right there and the guy was making, like, my food for me, which I found really kind of disturbed by, because, you know, then I guess maybe, like, tiered, like listening to all the sounds had some kind of weird influence unconsciously, which made me yeah, and, and it's a touch and go on whether that
1: was a positive or a negative, whether you've basically just been done by advertising, <laughs> and that was just, you've been subliminally had because chipotle has been put in your subconscious and therefore you found yourself in chipotle or if it actually will affect your experience of something as mundane as eating some fast food.
0: Yeah, yes. Yes. Uh, very true. And, and, you know, and, and this is something that, that you and Silva, you know, you guys were fighting all throughout, these different creative agencies, the whole, the whole Samsung, um, uh, idea which actually I found pretty interesting. Um, as you were explaining it, but then toward the end, I could see I could see your point as to you know why it, it could go wrong. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, the bottom line is you know I'm
1: pretty anti corporate. I as personally, you know, the other mm-hmm. two guys, sir you know don't see the world quite the same way. I'm pretty I'm pretty like that. Um, it is part of the landscape. It is part of kind of in the musical you know if you want revenue it comes from these other places apart from recorded music now but i think specifically on this project i think it would have just been that you've gone out on such a limb to make this point about an art piece a single art piece this rare thing the second a brand name goes near that i would i just thought that that's just it It, you know then you really are a publicity stunt then you really you know you haven't had the courage of your convictions Mm-hmm. that it's just the most conventional move you can kind of do these days and i mean you know i did for i i kind of i kind of like the, the weird thing is that Chipotle probably think it's it is actually creatively interesting i do there is there is something to be had there both for the guy creating the sound and to see if you actually that actually rings true with you when you're actually engaging with the food um i think just slapping a brand name on the, on, on the shaolin album in any kind of way would have been really weird and quite tawdry
0: and, and because you uh, you you vaguely mentioned, which I understand that you know you guys got some calls from like record labels, but what? When, when, when it came to the record labels, I guess eventually distribution would be a thing for them. But I could just imagine that uh, you know, because since record labels, you know, they build these legacies of you know being like I guess like sub pop and Nirvana or something like that. That they maybe a record label would just want it, so they could just say, yeah, we have the Once Upon a Time in Shaolin album, and maybe not even want to distribute it. But when it came to some of these record labels, um, did they ha- did they actually have any ideas as to what they were, they would were want to do with it, or were they, or were they just want to keep it?
1: no not really uh, a lot of this stuff came in very early on like really early on when I don't think people had fully understood what was going on I think you know you know, the, the, the weird thing is when something has massive press even the most professional sensible people lose their mind and want to jump on and get a piece of that bandwagon while it's hot and I don't think any of them had, I don't, well, it was only it was only two maybe three that, that were seriously you know that had got in touch mm-hmm. I don't think they had any idea they just wanted to have their foot in it. they just wanted to be like there to be part of whatever happened because this was big news. You know, this was the biggest album news anyone had heard in a very long time. Nothing had got this much hype. Therefore, we need to be in at the front of the queue. Otherwise, it might be someone else. And I don't think they'd fully engage with the ideas or really knew what was going on. That was my feeling.
0: When it com- This this is the thing about Wu-Tang that always fascinates me. Like, and, and, and I think this, this is also because of the fact that it's just a, a big-ass group. You, know, you have just not eight, nine different personalities. And every so often, no matter, like, you know, they they could not even come out with an album. There's always something about Wu-Tang in the press, whether if it's a Wu-Tang affiliate and the whole, like, you know, penis debacle, or if it's, if it's like this weird idea about an album, you know, issues with RZA and Ray Korn, there's always something going on within the world of Wu-Tang, and it just never ceases to amaze me. And then, you know, I'm reading this book, which comes out comes out of nowhere, and then next thing I know, I see Rizza, you know, doing things with Chipotle. It's, it's just a weird fascination, and this, this, is, this is the thing that fascinates me about Wu-Tang is, is, is the fact that how they can stay relevant in these different ways. It, it's a
1: really weird one. Saying, I, I, it, it was, again, something I said in the book. Like, if someone, if Kanye had tried to do this, it would have been taken differently, you know? It would have just been bling, ego, you know, he thinks he's Shakespeare again, that kind of thing. Um <laughs> I think with with Wu-Tang, there's there's an integrity, even with all the the fighting, all the kind of dramas and soap operas over the years, there is something that made people, even the most skeptical people, step back and give it a chance. There is something. There is an air of something I can't quite put my finger on. That even not as a dedicated fan, I definitely felt. And it's an edginess. It, it's 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 this kind of dance between a kind of edgy, kind of um, uh, discord and, uh, and, and a sort of volatile explosiveness to moments of really kind of transcendental creative creative insight. Um, and I think that. Like I I I, there's, I I can't put my finger on it, but I totally know what you mean. And somehow that has that has lasting appeal. It has a lasting kind of hold on the public consciousness.
0: You know, nowadays, you know, they, you know, you see people Wu Tang shirts. You know, I'm, i I work I work at a at, at university, and um, you know, they'll come to a the classroom. They have Wu Tang shirts, so I'm like, oh, you listen to Wu Tang, and you know, sometimes they'll say, oh, no. You know, and it's just a symbol. It's just the idea of it, you know, which fascinates people, which which I'm I'm, I'm amazed by. Um, and all you know, when it comes to like all like all three of you guys is business savvy, you know, RZA, you, and Silver Rings, um, the whole Boombox thing too. Like I had, um, you know, I remember when it came out, and um, and the idea of uh, um, a better tomorrow being embedded within the speakers, uh, and I had no idea that that I didn't, I didn't even think about it that that was Probably related in some in some shape or form to the Once Upon a Time in Shaolin project.
1: I mean, it was it was weird. I mean, I don't think it's one of those things. I don't think it was directly. It was, I don't think it was directly related. But like, just those ideas are just going around Rizzo's head. They're just going around head. So and it, you know, I, and I think it. You know, yeah. I guess in the wider sense, definitely those ideas. And, I, and it came back to that idea. Of, and I think the key to the boombotics thing were the two tracks in there, the two extra tracks that never leaked. Yeah. And like that was that was the really fascinating part. That's when you know if it's worked or not. That's when you know if you've got a solid anti piracy measure on your hand. And it's you know, an anti piracy that sounds like a one way thing, but it's also something that gives it value. It makes it feel special to you. If you're if what you've bought, if what you've bought is all over the internet. It does, you are not part of the story. You're not it's not yours. It's not your direct connection to the artist. It's not like your thing of value that you've got on your shelf anymore. you. Um and I, I think that was really interesting now. Whether whether it's right to put to confine how a specific speaker or not, that's a totally different debate and I think a very fair one to have, you know. Um uh, but it was again, it's just or, again, it kind of goes back to think everyone's just trying new ideas. And I mean, I, I don't know if we'll look back at this time as the time where the kind of music industry imploded or whether it was like one of these really volatile transition periods where, you know, people were dealing with changing realities. And a set of ideas will come out of this eventually that takes us into a new generation. Um, mm. I just I don't think we know where, which way it's going to go yet.
0: Yeah, well, I you know I I can see maybe ten years from now maybe people saying you know embedding embedding music in speakers probably not probably not the not the greatest idea in the world or you know maybe that could be something that uh, something that becomes a thing you know you think about the 80s and how the technology was changing and so how like some of the some of the sounds just kind of sounded shitty like the early 2000s with the Triton keyboard and how uh, I can't stand I can I just can't stand the sounds from that thing but uh nonetheless though when it when it comes to uh RZA in general because i um, I know i had to, i had to let you go soon I, I, toward the end when you know when you guys like pretty much like the like the the deal was made and everything like that, and you were you were just talking about like you silver rings um and RZA just like walking through like through the village in New York and everything like that uh what was that experience like just walking with RZA in in the street like in the streets and going to like a bar like a dive bar with them it was so random. It was. It really was so random. And it was this, it, it, it just, and like, we just
1: come out of this like really high-end dinner as well, which is what made it re- much better. You know what I mean? So we just kind of had this dinner um, with, you know, uh, Alexander Jones, head of the house, these kind of, you know, high society New York types. And that had been like one reality. And then I really did think Rizzo was going to go home after, you know, it's midnight, you know, et cetera. And he's like, no, man, let's go out. It's like, and the fact that there was no plan, that there was no limo, that there was no, you know, there there was no kind of, you know, high-end club. It was, again, it kind of, it was just like that, you you no, know, we're just on a random night out in, in in New York, but then that's punctuated where every five meters someone's going woo tang woo tang rizza, rizza. like except for the doorman <laughs> just like you, you know what the hell do you want? Um and like the fact that it was just like shockingly awful inside the club, but it just it was great. It was just comedy and it just added to that whole thing that this. Project. It felt from the start that, in a weird way, it was so organic. It wasn't. It wasn't that slick. You know. You know what I mean. It was just. It and and by the time. Seriously, the temple thing, man. Honestly, yeah. (laughs) I am not joking. Right. He's going. He's going. Right. I I called my friend the monk, and literally, I'm thinking, what's that code for? I. I mean, it just never even occurred to me. Um, (laughs) It's two a.m. on a Saturday night in the village. It's like, right, we're going. I'm So, okay. He's going. No, no. It's a. It's a monk. I'm thinking. All right. This I've got to see. We kind of walk into this space, man, and it's, for a start, it's full of people. Like, what the hell, man? It's a dojo stroke temple full of people at two o'clock in the morning of all these random different kinds of, you know, you know you've got kind of Chinese kung fu fighters, kind of Montenegrin dudes, people playing chess. And it's like all the stuff that I had obviously learned about kind of, you know, the Wu-Tang mythology and symbolism of the chess and the martial arts and Shaolin, all of that kind of thing. You're just watching it all play out in a microcosm of total reality. And like there's RZA sat on the floor of this, of, of this temple playing chess with this dude um, as, as, these, as these weird, really strong Chinese spirits are wheeled out. And it was just one of those utterly surreal moments where you just step back and just think... Jesus Christ! Really? Um, and it was—it was, it was really—it was—it was really lovely. It was one of those things, actually. Rizzo felt really at home. Next, like he—he's a—he—he—he he, he was very kind of cool with everybody in the street and everything. You know, he was nice, but he was nice in a—I'm a—you know—you know—I've got to be nice to the fans, kind of. I'm just a politeness kind of nice. But like when we were in the temple, it's just like he was totally at home, and like no one cared who he was. I mean, that you know, no one was no one was badgering him or trying to talk to her or anything like that. It was all so laid back, and it was a wonderful window. I think. I think it was really special for me to see that having spent like two years on the on the kind of, you know, the business side and the conceptual side of this to actually kind of uh, I, I actually get a window into that world, into his world and the people around him. Um, and, yeah, it was – that was absolutely fascinating.
0: A good um, – one. I think one of, the big, one of the biggest takeaways from the book was the fact that you know you have you're in this like the Shaolin Temple Community Center thing, and you know you have monks who are drinking, and then you pretty much like tell like a little historical tidbit about you know when drinking became allowed. Yeah, now
1: I've only got the monk there's version for, for, word <laughs> for that. Hey, I've tried to look this up. I tried to Google that, and I couldn't find any actual other evidence, confirmed supporting evidence for it. But yeah, that was that was that was the version. Because I was really shocked. You know, I thought it was going to be all kind of veganism and med- meditation. Um, and you know, <laughs> here it was, two a.m. with you know bottles of spirits, whiskey flying around the place. You know, hip hop blasting out the speakers, and the monk at the centre of it. That was the, the weird thing. Like he was totally cool. You didn't. You definitely. You definitely felt the vibe off him, that, you know, a really kind of intense purity. But, you know, but at the same time, it was totally cool to be kind of getting drunk and listening to tunes um, it was it was it was interesting it was um, it was definitely not what I expected and that was the version I was like really how is this possible what's the deal I'd always assume maybe I'm culturally uninformed that you know <laughs> drinking wasn't a thing <laughs> like you know the word monk just doesn't go with alcohol um, but yeah so there we go and so that's I mean you know as I say, I couldn't confirm it but like that's he's very open about it it's not like it was any secret or like don't tell anyone you know he was, he was like no this is totally cool This is the deal, this is how it is. And
0: and 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 this was like the first time that you heard thirty six chambers, like in like in, in this in this, I guess within this realm? Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, look,
1: I'm sure I'd heard bits of it, you know, just because it just filtered through my consciousness over 20 years. But, like, it was just that co- real comedy moment where I'm going, this is really good, this music, and they just start laughing at me. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it was just, like, the most ridiculous thing. And I think they kind of, I think the guys in the put it on and, you know, ju- you know, you know. I, but it was, it was, that, I, that was a real comedy moment and a really lovely moment. And it actually meant, you see, the thing is, if I had been, as not the biggest Wu-Tang fan, you know, as not been that familiar with the music, if I'd sat there and tried to listen to 36 Chambers, of, you know, of, by myself in my, in my flat, in my apartment, while we were doing all of this... Like, it would have been a really inorganic process. I'd be, like, trying to engage with it because I'm working with these guys and, you know, I've got to try and understand this music and I'd be going in on quite a linear level and quite a, you know, surface level of just trying to sort of logically deconstruct it so it makes sense to me. But, like, the fact that I actually had my experience of kind of Wu-Tang music by myself, like, I engaged with the music without knowing what it was and, you know, was really feeling it in that environment, that made it really special for me
0: the thing about you, like you and silver rings, I would imagine that, you know, over, over the course of all these years, like you guys are probably like really good friends now. And yet you guys seem like polar opposites.
1: Totally. And I think that's why it worked.
0: Um, I, I, I honestly think, you know,
1: I would have been, you know, a, I wouldn't, you know, a was his, you know, he was driving it all. It was his plan, but like, you know, I was, I, we, we fit. It was the yin and yang thing of why this worked. And we'd built a level of trust that we could literally have full blown shouting matches um, about what, you know, this issue. And it wouldn't be weird. It wouldn't affect our underlying trust or relationship. And that's a, really, that's a really special position to be in with another human being, where you, have, you can voice your view that intensely. But at no point is it taken the wrong way or does it affect any kind of underlying vibe. Um, and I think if we hadn't had that, um, this would have gone wrong because a lot of what went on, you know, a lot of the kind of minutiae, like we'd have to have argued it out and hammered up or at least come up with conflicting positions or something and then go and chat to Isabella. about it. Cause especially if we lived in the same town. You know, mm. so we'd have a lot of these discussions and have massive arguments first before we even ended up chatting to Riza about it. Um, you know, so uh, and we, we still are very good friends. You know, um, and you know there's a trust, and you know he's a totally different person to me. But you've kind of been through something this intense and come out the other side with trust intact. That's pretty. That's saying something.
0: Do you think I mean, well, I, I really think that trust is is probably one of the biggest elements uh, um, within this book between the relationships between, uh, you know, RZA, RZA, you know, you gaining Riza's trust. You and Silva rings having this um, this relationship and then the evolution of the legalities involving the album and just the, the logistics of trying to have people listen to it.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, that was it. It was like, it, 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 in, in a, there was a couple of points where there just wasn't any more protections you could build in. And one of the classic ones was PS1, where, all right, you can search everyone at the door who's coming in. But, you know, really, the guys that are setting it up, are you really going to diss them by searching them? You can't, man. You just can't. That's just so massively uncool. So trust. And it was such a liberating feeling. It was such a nice, human, warm feeling to go, do you know what? We trust you. Um, especially when you've been in this bunker mentality. You know, you've gone through all kinds of ridiculous hoops that a mastering engineer can't have the whole album at the same time. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and even with Martin Screlly, of all people, um, but you kind of reached this point where, okay, I. It, it just boiled down to that basic point that's in the book. It's like, they, he needs to be able to have some recourse if we are playing him, and he pays. What he, he hands, he signs a cheque, and 30 seconds later, the album gets released for free. All the fans love. All the fans love the woo. He's been screwed. Um, you know, score one for the hustle. Um, that's that. You know, so he needed some protection against that, and we needed protection against the fact that hang on, if we gave him the right to sue us for that, what's to stop him I'm leaking it? What's to stop him leaking it, blaming us? So that was a real – that was a, that was like – that took like two months to figure out. And it, again, it boiled down. We built in various levels of, okay, of 16 bars, whatever. You know, you can – 16 bars leaks, then you get X. You know, if 32 bars, you get Y. But ultimately, it, it, you know, we didn't know about the Daraprim thing at the time. But even still, you're dealing with some dude you've never you, – you've had one phone call with, two phone calls with, and they're, and they're lawyers – and all, after all of this, after all the secrecy, they kind of end up having to sort of trust each other because no one can really sue anyone else because that just won't work.
0: I, uh, I was looking at one of your articles that really really revolved around notions of like the legal system and everything like that. And it's just so funny that, you know, like when things become so legal that it just breaks down anyway, you just kind of create this big-ass paradox that, you know, whereas it, it, you know, when you just keep building in all these protections everything in certain ways just become it becomes null and void over over time yeah totally
1: absolutely and you know i think that's kind of a healthy thing you know like we try and we try it's you know we try as as as, you know i kind of you know the especially the western kind of view of society Mm -hmm. we try and logically construct a billion and one frameworks to kind of you know to channel how th- how events might happen and prepare for every eventuality, uh, uh, but so often it they you know the, the human experience just don't, won't fit in those boxes.
0: Did, did you ever at times like felt like just tur- turning away because of the fact that in many ways being a part of this project, the secrecy and the, and the legalities of it all. Um, that it just didn't really fit with, you know, some of your core beliefs, and especially coming from the illegal, like, you know, UK rave scene? There was... I mean, let's put it this way. I, I mean, when I first heard about it, I was absolutely horrified.
1: I thought it was the <laughs> worst idea I'd ever heard. Um, and uh, I was very reticent. I think there's two or three things that shifted my perception on that. One, I really felt a bond and trust with RZA and Silverings, And I, I didn't feel... Like I was part of some horrible PR corporate hustle. I didn't feel that at all. I, it felt like two guys making a statement, and it wouldn't have been my statement. But the more I thought about it, I I I was with them. I was with them as far as the diagnosis was concerned. As far as the, as far as the kind of cure was concerned, I would never have been my cure. But I found it very, very interesting. And the more I thought about it, the more ideas it threw up that I thought were really valid. And I think it's key that the, at no point did this project say that this was the answer. You know, I think that would have been more complex. I think it, it, I, that would have turned me away more. If it was like, right, guys, private albums, that's the way it's going to run from now on. You know, this is it. We're not, you know, screw the fans from now on. This is what, how we're going to play it. I would have stepped away but it wasn't that it was like let's just do this 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 one-off experiment that's more of a question than an answer and see like kind of roll this ball into the middle of this fray and see where it lands and on that basis I was I was much happier to engage with it as a kind of experiment that wasn't claiming to be you know uh have have you know right on its side it was just a really interesting experiment
0: how do you feel about Jay Z's recent album and yet another kind of weird deal that he did with Sprint?
1: The thing is, I mean, that's you know, again, it's not again. That's totally not my thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't like the Sprint deal, but that's you know, I don't I don't know if I criticize him for it because he. It's again, he's trying to he's trying to be innovative in a in a in a very difficult landscape, and his innovative solution is working with corporations. And that, you know, 90% of the world thinks like that. Um, you know, it's not, it, you know, it's, it, it fits, it, it, it works within the contemporary paradigm. Um, and, you know, for a lot of people, um, you know, working with business, with businesses doesn't cheapen the artistic product. I happen to think it does. But I, I don't think it's any kind of hypocrisy on his part. I think he's genuinely trying to find, trying to be innovative. Um, and I think a lot of people agree with him that that's, I mean, then when that Samsung deal broke, Mm -hmm. everyone was hailing him as a genius, you know, um, uh, you know, it wasn't my thing at all, but I, you know, I just think that because it's so screwed up, people are trying to find solutions. And, um, I don't, you know, I don't think he's, yeah, it, 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 you know, it jars with me, the corporate thing, but I don't think he's exploiting anyone. So, and I think he's trying his best.
0: Finally. When it comes to this book and I, you know, I've been reading, I've, I've read like a little bit of, um, you know, I guess people uh, writing about the book in, in various, in various publications and outlets. Um, do you, th- and I, th- I feel this way, do you think that people overall um, have kind of misunderstood the project overall and even uh, this book so far? Yeah, totally. I
1: mean, I think part of part of reason for the book was because the project was misunderstood. And it's fair for it to be misunderstood, because there wasn't actually that much communication during it about this. You know, I think it's I think I think, you know, that that part of it was to basically to to explain because not. It hadn't been, you know, the, the kind of layers beneath it hadn't really been explained. So I don't think I said it was full. The The problem I, I think with the book that came out is that, you know, instantly the tabloids cherry-picked a couple of ridiculous lines that I wasn't even saying. I was, you know, the whole kind of, you know, Wu-Tang fans put out a hit on Martin Scully thing. You know, that was so cherry-picked. That's not what I was saying. That's not what I was saying. It was just that, like, he'd gone so far off the reservation that we could no longer control. We, he, 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 would, he had taken things to a situation where... He'd, he, he'd just, he'd gone way over the line and we weren't sure what was going to happen. And, you know, I that was a speculation <laughs> of a worst case scenario. So instantly, the way it's reflecting the press, it's like that this is a kind of, you know, juicy tell-all about the Martin Scully thing, absolutely ignoring what the book's really about. Um, and, you know, and I, I did this interview with, um, with New York Magazine and like, the guy just clearly didn't believe me. Uh, He just didn't believe the book and he, you know, completely misquoted me. Um, He had me saying it was a publicity stunt and all that kind of thing, which I was really pissed off about. I mean, I expected better from an outlet like that. Um, But he'd come in, I mean, I just remember being on the phone to him. And he was going, he was kind of, he was very skeptical. And I was so thrown by that because I kind of felt I'd been really quite upfront. Um, in the book, and I'd addressed the rights to the wrongs, and you know, and he was—he he sort of asked me, you know, you know, what do you say with all the scheming that went on in this book? You know, what do you say that this book is just another part of the plan? And I, was just like, I was so taken aback, like I just didn't even know what to say. So I kind of made some wisecrack, and like that clearly didn't make the situation better, and it just kind of unravelled from there. Um, it's, you know, the problem is, it's—I don't think you know—the nicest thing, any—the nicest things people have said to me about the book. Well, uh, I wasn't expect- it wasn't what I was expecting, and I really enjoyed it. And I don't think it is, because I think that with all the kind of tabloid hype about this, when a book, l- l- you know, the way like, like this comes out, people, people think that it's some kind of merchandising tie-in or, some, you know, trying to cash in on something, and it's going to be quite a kind of cheap tabloid version of, you know, dealing with, you know, the notorious villain Martin Screlly. Um, and it actually takes people reading it to, to, to kind of see that it's not that, or hearing it from French.
0: Yeah, you know, um, yeah. Again, I, I was I was rather surprised, and honestly, you uh, you don't really spend that much time talking about Martin Sculli that much. To me, I mean, it's it's a much more complex story, and about the legalities of music, and I mean, and how you said it, you know, and how everyone is trying to figure it out in the industry, even some of these label executives and. Also, just the, the just the weird, crazy people out there. In, anyway, you know, like the guy from Nigeria who offered what, like seven million dollars worth of livestock to you guys, some <laughs> shit.
1: <laughs> I mean, I still don't know if that was a joke or not, but it was just—it was just so classic. I mean, literally, it was like a really solemn, formal email. It was classic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well. Well, I hope, nonetheless. Um, although, with uh, with a lot of these uh, certain media outlets, just really talking about the book as a scheme or, or the schemes that were, that, were, that were a part of the project. I hope that at least this interview can shed a little bit of light on the nuance and the complexities that actually are within the book when it comes to Wu-Tang, um, you know, Silver Rings and, uh, you know, his story and just music in general.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate it. It's been a brilliant interview. I mean, definitely the best I've done. So, I mean, thank you. Um, it, was, it was great to actually talk about, like, the real stuff behind it. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, well. Thanks so much. Um, and this has been another. Oh well, actually, I shouldn't say that. Uh, actually, where can people uh, where can people find you? And and what other thing um, products do you have going uh, going on right now? Um, I've got Arcadia going on. Um, I've got this other book, The Syndicate, going
1: on. I'm on Facebook. I stay off Twitter. Um, and yeah, that's ba- that's basically it. And I guess the books, pretty much, anywhere you buy a book. <laughs>
0: All right, well, there you have it. Um, It's a uh, guy's, it's a really, really good book. I'm pretty sure the great majority of this audience will go ahead and check out this book. So, um, this has been another edition of the Wu Tang Podcast. I'm Singh God Superior. You can check us out at, uh, at Wu Tang Podcast on Twitter, com, And we are out. Peace.